lecture is taken from the graduate course Introduction to Charitable Planning at Texas Tech University. To download the PowerPoint slides for this lecture, or to take the online quiz for this lecture, or to find out more about the Graduate Certificate in Charitable Financial Planning at Texas Tech University, go to EncourageGenerosity.com. Hey, I got an idea. Let's talk about Charitable Remainder Trust. Wouldn't that be cool? All right. So, Charitable Remainder Trust. Um, this, in terms of sophisticated planning, this is kind of the big enchilada. Okay? This is the most significant instrument that's used in, uh, in uh, uh, advanced planning. Uh, let me give you just a reminder of, uh, of some of the numbers we looked at at the beginning of the semester. If you look at charitable trust types by numbers. Now, this doesn't include gift annuities, which is a separate sort of animal. And you say, what number are there out there? Of charitable remainder trusts, blue. Charitable lead trusts, red. And pooled income funds, green. Okay. And what you see is pretty much charitable remainder trusts are the, are the uh, um, uh, big dog in terms of these uh, moderate to, to large size uh, estates. Now, uh, of course, when we look at by total asset value, one of the things you notice about that red uh, pie there, that red slice, is that it gets a lot bigger. We will talk about charitable lead trusts. That slide still has the typo in it. Um, it's not plural, lead trusts, uh, because that's for uh, uh, very large estates. And then, and then finally, you will have, uh, we'll talk about private foundations, which are even more mammoth in terms of the amount of assets that, that are in them. Because you think about it, if, if we go back to uh, the basic concept here, okay, of a charitable remainder trust, which is this. So it makes a transfer into this trust, they get payments during life, and at the end uh, of a period of time or at death, it goes to a charity. This is a really good setup for moderate to large um, estates. Sometimes estates that get so large where this may not be useful because they, you have people that have no need for uh, income. Uh, and so then you're getting into private foundations and other things like that. Although you can actually still use these for large estates because as we'll see, the income doesn't have to go back to the donor. It can go to other people. But these charitable remainder trusts, one of the reasons why they're so uh, dominant, uh, why, they're such, uh, why there's so many of them and why they're such a big part of advanced planning, is unlike charitable gift annuities and unlike um, rem uh, property remainder interests, charitable remainder trusts are all individually custom made for the most part. So because of that, the amount of creativity that you can put into one of these things is almost limitless. Now, there are some guidelines, and we have to meet some rules. But where, when you look at a charitable gift annuity, when an organization issues it, it's pretty much the same. Okay? One person's is going to be the same as the other person's, except for the amount and their age. But it looks the same. It's the same one-page agreement, usually. Uh, most all charities follow the same rates. Okay? It's pretty plain vanilla. Charitable remainder trusts, although we'll start out with some basic concepts, 
they are all or most of them are individually created for that particular donor. It does make them more expensive. It makes them more expensive to create and there are some administration costs because they're each individually administered for that particular donor. But it also allows you to be really specific and creative for what that particular donor wants uh, and what fits that particular donor's assets. So when we look at charitable remainder trusts, it's a little bit of a different animal because, you know, we really got into charitable gift annuities. And I actually feel pretty comfortable in saying, you know, when it comes to charitable gift annuities, you pretty much got it. Uh, I mean, that's really all there is to it, okay? Charitable remainder trusts, we're going to do the, the, the basic ways that they work and the basic ways that they use them. But next semester in advanced charitable planning, we're going to spend a lot more time with these. Why? Well, it's because we can do all sorts of things with them because they're all individually created. And so we can uh, look at a lot of different scenarios and we can add a lot of different things together and we can add a lot of different instruments together in the same sort of transaction and we can individually customize it for that particular client. Okay. Um, so we will look at the concepts, but this is by no means an exhaustive look at charitable remainder trusts. There are a number of books, uh, uh, technical books, just on charitable remainder trusts, uh, and I could stack up a few of them here fairly high. So just kind of get that sense. Charitable gift annuities, I think you pretty much got, the, got what's there to get. Charitable remainder trusts, we'll look at the general concepts, but we could spend a lot more time looking at the fun things we could do with them, and that's part of what uh, next semester's advanced class uh, will also deal with. Okay, so what is charitable remainder trust? Basic concept, donor makes an initial transfer into a trust. What is a trust? I always like to think of a trust as a basket. What does a trust do? It holds things. It holds things like uh, money or uh, farms or uh, property or stocks, and uh, it follows the instructions that are put with the trust. The instructions that are put with a charitable remainder trust are to give payments out during life or perhaps for a period of time, and then at the end of that time of giving payments out, uh, to give whatever's left over in the trust to a charity. It's the basic concept. That is what a charitable remainder trust is. So let's take a look at uh, some of the different uh, versions of this. Uh, the basic idea, donor sets aside money from which he takes payments with any remaining amount going to charity. That's all it is. Okay? We can do a few other things with it, but that's at its core what most of these are set up as. Now, we can change some things. The payments don't have to go to the donor. The payments could go to other people. The donor could set it up and say, I want the payments to go to uh, me or to me and my spouse or just to my spouse or to my child or to my grandchildren or to somebody I met on the street today or to all of the uh, people that were in my fraternity. I, you know, It doesn't matter. There's no limit. Now, charitable gift annuities, remember, we could pick one life or two lives. That was it. Not the case here. We can have as many people as we want to name. Now, it affects the valuations and it affects our payout rates, but we can pick as many people as we want. So, for example, we could say, as in the example here, 5% of whatever's in the trust each year will go to uh, these two uh, computer-generated uh, things. Um, the uh, payments can be for the donor's life. The payments could be for as many lives as desired. It could be for one life, for two lives, for three lives, for ten lives. There's no limitations. It can be for as many lives as you want. Um, it is, uh, it, again, it will affect the uh, way you value them, uh, but it is possible. It is uh, available. 
Payments can also be for a period of years. However, if it's going to be for a period of years, the maximum number of years is 20. So we can't set up a uh, charitable remainder trust for more than 20 years, although we could set it up for the life of, uh, you know, of, of, say, 17 grandchildren and the last to die of them if we want it to last a very long time. Uh, okay, so how can we pay things out? There are, uh, for the most part, there's only two ways we can pay things out, and we'll look at some exceptions to this later. One way is, what we should be really familiar with at this point, is an annuity. Just like a charitable gift annuity, it is a specific dollar amount. It never changes. It's what is paid out every year, no matter what, as long as there's still stuff left in the trust. Now, of course, that's one of the distinctions between a charitable gift annuity, which is an obligation of the entire charitable organization, and a charitable remainder trust, which only can pay from what you put into it, right? And if you spend everything that's in it, it can't pay anymore. Uh, or if you invest everything that's in it in Enron, it can't pay anymore once the company uh, goes under. Uh, so charitable remainder annuity trusts uh, is one way uh, to, um, uh, to uh, uh, make the payments out. The other way is uh, through what's called a unitrust, charitable remainder unitrust. And what a unitrust pays is not a fixed dollar amount, but a fixed percentage of whatever happens to be in the trust that year. So, for example, we can say 5% of everything in the trust at the end of that year is going to pay out to the donor, 5% uh, of all uh, trust assets. Now, as it turns out that, it turns out that about 80% or more of all charitable remainder trusts are this type. This is the most popular type. Uh, and uh, what, you know, why is it the most popular type? Well, the donor, we'll look at later, the donor could continue to manage the money that's in this trust. And oftentimes donors want to be able to manage the money, get better returns, and as they increase the, the pile in the trust, uh, they can then increase the dollars that, that come out of it because they get 5% or whatever the percentage rate is of the entire amount of what's in the trust at the end of, of each year. So these are actually more popular uh, than annuity trusts, but you can do it either way. There's a limitation on the percentage. It has to be at least 5% and uh, can be no more than 50%. Uh, but uh, as long as you pick some number in between uh, that level, it, uh, it can be possible. Okay. The donor can give lots of different things. The donor can put cash into the charitable remainder trust. The donor can put property. The most common thing to put in a charitable remainder trust is appreciated securities. In a financial planning context, when we're working with a client and we see what they have in their different assets, if we see they have an asset that is highly appreciated, something they've held for a long time, low basis asset, that's probably going to be the last thing we want to move around. Why? Because as soon as we move it, we've got to pay all those capital gains taxes. right? And so there's a big negative to shifting that asset into something else because we sell it, we pay a lot of capital gains tax if it's low basis, if they paid very little for it and now it's worth a whole lot. So we tend to leave those assets away in normal financial planning. However, when it comes to charitable planning, those are the assets we love. Those are the assets we really want to find and go after because there are ways to avoid those capital gains taxes uh, when we use the charitable remainder trust. We'll look at those in a moment. But it's the reason why the most common asset to be transferred into charitable remainder trust is usually highly appreciated uh, stocks or highly appreciated securities. Whether it be something that a person bought 
on the New York Stock Exchange and they just picked well and it grew over the years, or if it happens to be stock of a closely held company, their own family business that they grew and is now worth a lot, it's in the form of a corporation, uh, you can transfer uh, uh, shares of stock to a charitable remainder trust. Now, it turns out you can't transfer S-corporation stock, which is that uh, small corporation stock. It has to be C-corporation or the traditional types of corporations. But most uh, anything else, you can transfer into a charitable remainder trust. You can transfer personal property. If you've got somebody that has artwork or an expensive violin or um, you know, anything of personal property, that can also be transferred into a charitable remainder trust. So a trust can hold anything, and a charitable trust can hold uh, charitable remainder trusts can hold about any assets except for a few things that cause problems uh, such as uh, S-corporation uh, stock or anything where the charity is actually running a company rather than just being a passive shareholder. Okay? All right. Now, one thing to keep in mind about charitable remainder trusts is that even though they are enormously flexible when you're setting them up and you can do all kinds of different creative things, once you set it up, it freezes. Okay? Once you set it up, it's irrevocable. You can't change any of the rules after you set it up. You can't say, oh, I think this is a really bad idea. I'd like to get my money out. You can't uh, change uh, the structure that you've created once you've created it. It is irrevocable. It cannot be changed. Now, even though the rules of the charitable remainder trust cannot be changed, you can create those rules such that they leave some flexibility so that you're not changing the rules, but the rules allow you to uh, do a couple of things. The two most common things that people will set up uh, rules uh, to allow them to do in a charitable uh, gift, in, uh, a charitable remainder trust is, number one is to um, uh, allow the donor to continue to manage the assets. Now, the donor can continue to manage the assets. The, the donor can also um, pick somebody else to manage the assets. Let me shut this. We got this memo about how we're not supposed to leave the doors open because uh, when terrorists come in to shoot people at the doors locked, then it's more difficult for them to do that. Um, so uh, I'm actually supposed to shut it immediately, and then if you're late, you just have to knock on the door, and then I have to check your pass that you're not a terrorist and then come in. Um, but uh, anyway, so you all feel safer now, and I can tell you're a little nervous there if somebody's going to come in. and Yeah, yeah. I don't think you could escape out those, though. Those don't really open, well, I mean, so... I'm thinking, like, the oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Maybe we should close all the blinds so they can't really tell where the people are, you know, and then we could hit the floor by the time. Okay. You wouldn't? That's good. That's good. All right. Now that we have our safety issues dealt with. Um, one of the things that, uh, that is nice is that even though you can't change the rules of the trust once it's set up, you can uh, decide who the manager is going to be, and the manager can be the donor. So the donor can create the charitable remainder trust, set up the rules, make the transfer, and then be the trustee who manages the property. Uh, the, charitable, uh, the, the donor can also choose not to do that. The donor can say, oh, I want a trust company to do that. Or in some cases, the donor could say, um, I want the charity to do that. And some charities will do that. They will manage these on behalf of the donors if they know that they're going to get a, uh, uh, a payoff in the end. Uh, but it's, it's a choice, something that, uh, that uh, you can decide. Yeah. As an advisor, 
is there something that we should do? Because it sounds like there, when I heard you say I heard a problem, but that, that, it, that some of these are set up and they name someone else other than us and then we can't manage these things. Well, you know, um, there's a couple of different things to, to keep in mind. Uh, one is if the donor names himself or herself as the manager, then if you've been managing the donor's assets before, you're probably still going to be managing the donor's assets now. So that I guess what I'm foreseeing is that a lot of these things, but before I get my hands on them, I, I meet a client and say, oh, it's all in this trust fund, naming, naming Northern Trust or somebody like this. Mm -hmm. And so as an advisor, uh, that means that I can't do anything. Yes, that. right. So if they've named another professional trustee, then so you can't do anything with it. Well, I think if it is, um, I, I think if it's before the thing is set up, probably your best route is just to encourage them to uh, to act as their own trustee, and then you can advise them. You can do services. You can be, you know, paid for your services out of the the, the trust. So, so it essentially is the same relationship as with their regular uh, investments. Um, so that would be a direct route. You know, you, you could go the route of trying to become the trustee. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a fairly, um, if you do that, you want to make sure that there's a lot of alternatives listed there. So if you get sick of doing it, some, you can bow out and somebody else will take over. Or if you move to a different town or, you know, whatever. There's also a new custody rule that, that subjects you to a lot more regulatory scrutiny if you're taking serving as trustee for a client's money. Right, so you... Mandatory audits that you pay for mm -hmm. every year. So, so it's definitely a different relationship when you're a trustee in terms of that fiduciary relationship uh, in, in, in particular uh, than if you're just giving advice um, to, to someone. Now, of course, we may see legislation that expands a fiduciary relationship to a lot of advice-giving circumstances, but if you're asking, acting as trustee, then you definitely are uh, representing uh, both the income beneficiary, which is the donor, and uh, the charity, and and uh, you need to act in a way that sort of is uh, uh, is uh, 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 intended to benefit them. So it is a higher standard if you're acting as as trustee. So again, my first suggestion would be leave them as a, yeah. And, and there are some options that, um, of trust companies that just do just do the. Uh, you know, the reporting and mm -hmm. the custody annual and filing like and, mm -hmm. and, and the administrative part of it, mm -hmm. and then allow the financial advisor to, you know, maintain that relationship mm -hmm. and, and, and trade the assets, and then the trustee collects the fees and pays it to the advisor. Mm -hmm. um, National Advisors Trust Company is one that, that we bought into, but okay. we a shareholder to use it. Also, Charles Schwab has a trust company where they'll do that oh, okay. for advisors that are under Charles Schwab. And um, there's, there's one out of Delaware, I can't remember what it's called. Um, advisors is in the title. Mm -hmm. but, uh, 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 there's one in New Mexico. But, but there, there, are ways, there are ways to do it without being the trustee and without actually having custody of the mm -hmm. custody rules mm -hmm. and subject yourself to regulatory. So if you're running through an organization like Schwab, it sounds like they're going to collect the fee and then split the fee, pay, essentially pay you for your, your management services. It's sort of like a donor-advised fund is what it sounds right. like. They yeah. Just have, they just have a charge for their services. Right. They charge for 
right? Yeah, th that would certainly um, make a lot more sense than being a, a trustee because because these things I mean, you got to file an annual tax report. There's I mean there's ongoing sort of uh, uh, paperwork hassle that goes with them um, that uh, that you're probably going to want to avoid unless you're doing a whole bunch of them and then you're essentially acting as a trust company and you're in that business. Um, so it's uh, um, I mean I've had a circumstance where trying to think. Where I've acted personally as trustee, and ultimately what I wound up doing was um, basically opting out of it and going to some of the, you know, I always draft it with a lot of different alternative uh, trustees or ways of selecting trustees because it, it winds up being more hassle than, than you really want to fool with unless you're doing a whole lot of them. Yeah. Jim? So you mentioned uh, alternative trustees that you listed in the document. Can you, can you list, like, that the donor selects who it is, or do you have to specify specifically who they can? Uh, How much flexibility can you build into who the trustee is? I don't think it's unlimited because you don't want to have a circumstance where the donor can um, later on like pick up and drop trustees sort of at will until you know somebody does exactly um, you know something that maybe the donor would get in trouble for doing himself or herself directly. Um, I guess I'm I'm um, Without having spent a lot of time going through that, I'm more comfortable with processes that um, if, the, if the donor doesn't want to do it himself or herself, that creates a process for selecting. Like, okay, well, we'll check with, uh, we'll ask these three groups to pick a professional trustee or something like that is sort of the third option. Like usually, you know, I, I would set things up, if I'm setting up a trust where the, uh, where the uh, person can't serve as trustee, you know, it might be an advisor uh, and then drop down to uh, a child and then drop down to the other child and then drop down to, you know, a variety of like. And then, you know, ultimately you could say uh, or a professional trust company as selected by, you know, these these few people um, or, or you could even name uh, the, uh, the, the trust company. Probably you could just have ultimate flexibility and not run into any problems since ultimately in this kind of trust, the, uh, the donor can be his or her own trustee. Uh, so you could probably even draft it where the donor could just pick later. Um, um, I would just want to spend a little bit of time to make sure there's no problems with that first. That yeah. Okay. All right. So um, this is uh, one of the options that's available in a remainder trust. The donor can choose himself, a charity, a trust company, or anyone else as a charitable remainder, a trust, a trustee, as long as the person's uh, willing to uh, serve. So some of the flexibility you have there. Oops. Okay. Work. There we go. Another thing the donor can do, uh, even though the trust itself is irrevocable, the donor can keep the option to change uh, which charity is going to receive the money. So this is a big difference between when a donor sets it up uh, and when a charity sets one up for the donor. If a charity sets one of these up for the donor, they're going to make it irrevocable to the charity, to that particular charity. If a donor sets one up on his own or her own, that is using his or her attorney or advisor, they're probably going to set it up so that if they decide they don't like what's happening with that particular charity, that they can change at any point who the charity is going to be. Now, it does have to be some charity. Okay. So the, the remainder amount does have to go to charity. That part can't be changeable. But what can be 
uh, something that the uh, that the donor can uh, ha- continue to have the rights over is to which charity or charities receive the money. And in fact, the typical one of these is that uh, most donors name about three to four different charities. Okay? So it's actually not most common that donors would just name one particular charity for the whole charitable remainder trust. They're probably going to put everything into one big charitable remainder trust, and they may have three or four charities that they have interest in, and they can name those. They can change the percentages. They can change the the, uh, charities. So again, ultimate flexibility, very different from the gift annuity, which, of course, comes from the charity, so always has to be to that charity. In a charitable remainder trust, you can change uh, who the charities are, what percentages they get, if you set it up that way. Now, of course, if you set it up that says it's going to go to charity X, uh, and, and it's not set up to be changeable, well, then you can't change it because once you've created it, it's irrevocable. Uh, the document itself uh, can't, can't be changed. But you can retain that ability to shift among charities. Uh, okay, so that's the basic concept without all the tax law. What I want you to do now is to take a couple minutes and, again, work in groups of two or three. If you get into a group of four, split it into two. And I want you to think through this and see if you can just write down a couple of ideas of what is a circumstance or different circumstances when you might have a client who's charitably inclined who would want to use one of these things. Without getting into all the tax stuff that we'll talk about in a minute, just the basic concept here. Can you think of a scenario where this could fulfill the desires of a uh, particular client or a particular uh, donor, knowing the flexibility and knowing that these payments can go to other people, they don't have to go to the donor, that sort of thing. So take a few minutes, work with at least one other person or two other people, and uh, see if you can come up with some scenarios uh, when you might want to uh, suggest this. Okay. All right, so um, let's uh, front row. You guys want to start? Okay. What what scenarios do you come up with? Okay. Shut up. Front row. Okay. It can happen when the donor wants the flexibility to change the charity. Okay. And it can also happen if someone has more than one children who they want to provide for. Mm-hmm. So if we got a scenario, and last week we were talking to them about a gift annuity, and they're like, oh, that's all good, but I, maybe 10 years from now I won't like this charity anymore. This gives them the flexibility. Well, that's true. Okay, sorry. Okay, and um, if the donor wishes to directly oversee the assets in a portfolio. Mm-hmm. So you've got a, if you've got a donor that still wants to manage uh, his, uh, his uh, uh, assets, now, this can be, you know, we can think of it, well, maybe it's just somebody just likes to play the stock market or likes to, you know, dollar cost average their stuff or whatever. But it can also be a closely held company where the donor still wants to have control and be able to hire and fire people and all that sort of thing. And so you can have that be a really important factor where the donor wants to continue to manage those assets. Yeah. But isn't that, what was that deal about um, the charity can't Charity can't be running a business, uh, right? Right. So if if he's the manager of the trust that owns all the shares of stock, okay, a C corporation, 
he then has the right to appoint the board of directors who then pick the people who will run the, the company. So it's not the trust that's directly managing. All the trust is doing is they're holding those shares of stock. It's not even the well, it turns out that a charitable remainder trust is actually a kind of a charity. It is in and of itself a, a, a charitable uh, entity. Um, so we kind of, it, it has to deal with some of the same things that charities do. And it's one of the reasons when we get into the tax laws, we'll find out if that trust, that charitable remainder trust, takes that low basis asset and sells it, it doesn't pay any capital gains tax because it's a charity, a form of a charity. Can yeah. use for business succession? Uh, can it be used for business succession? In what way? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm trying to think through here. Let's say I'm trying to transfer. Do your payments have to be in cash? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they pretty much, um, I haven't seen anything where they're running it through in, in property. Um, how could it work with business succession? Well, you're putting uh, shares of stock into the trust basket. At some point, if that trust is going to pay out money, you're probably going to have to sell those shares of stock. So it might be if, uh, if there's not a big market for it, uh, it might be that who they wind up selling it to, yeah, it can't really just turn around and sell it to children, though, because that's, a, that's kind of a conflict of interest and it creates uh, self-dealing problems with the trust. So it's more a matter of... If you had a business that the kids didn't want to run, th then this might make a little bit more sense because here the kids could just get like the income part of it. Uh, and, but if you're trying to transfer ownership of the business, it could get a little bit tricky if you're doing it through a charitable remainder trust um, because there's a prohibition on self-dealing where, um, where they're selling stuff to family members and you know, that kind of thing. Um, so probably, um, although you know these things are so flexible, I'm sure they've been used in, in different components. But my initial reaction is that's pro that's not an obvious immediate. It's not an immediately obvious use for them, um, unless yeah, right. Okay. Right. Any anyone else? Anything else here? I was just going to say that kind of plugs in with the. Uh wanting to manage the assets, I mean, if, if you're doing a flat percentage with uh, charitable annuity, I mean, it's the same payment, but I mean, you could have variability in the size of the payment based on mm -hmm. your performance as far as mm -hmm. managing the portfolio mm -hmm. trust. So that's a, that's a nice thing as compared to charitable gift annuity in that if you want to be rewarded for your success as a manager, you can be here. Which you, you can't otherwise, yeah. Can you add assets to the trust once it's established? Uh, so the question is, can you add assets to the trust once it's established? It turns out that you can do that if it is a, uh, let me get back to it, if it's the, uh, let me find where it says Unitrust, if it's this kind of trust, okay? So if you're paying out a percentage of the total uh, assets each year, then you can add stuff to it. But it doesn't work to add stuff to it if it's this kind of trust. Because this trust is already set up, it's going to pay $1,000 a year per life, uh, for life, and you can't change that. And so it doesn't, it doesn't work to add assets to the trust because this part doesn't change at all. Um, so, but would uh, it be a way of reducing the estate and still giving more to the ultimate charity? Well, um, if you're going to, at that point, um, you could just give it to the charity. 
charity. Yeah, give it, give it straight to the charity. If you wanted to say, well, now I want a $1,500 a year per life, you can do that. You just have to set up another CRAD. You have to set up another charitable remainder annuity trust. With, with a CRUT, they can actually just keep accepting money. Um, but with a CRAT, you have to set up another one if you, if you want um, because you can't change that $1,000 a year payout even if you add more money. So, um, so it doesn't, doesn't work that way. Okay, where were we at? I think we were here. Okay. All right. Group here, what'd you all come up with? Uh, we said if they were an extremely wealthy client with a large estate, they may want to use that. Um, with assets that had a low basis or mm -hmm. high present value, um, if you have several charities that you want to benefit, if individuals want an income stream throughout life, uh, the donor may want to have control of assets after they give the donation or establish the trust as far as where to, um, and then they may want the ability to change the charity. Yeah, so all of those are just listing off uh, some some uh, great advantages with the Charitable Remainder Trust. It's great when we get into tax purposes for low basis stock. It's great if you want to continue to have management, if you have multiple charities, if you want to be able to change your mind about the charities, uh, if you want it to go to uh, to benefit uh, multiple people in the in the meantime. What about this group here? Or, yeah. Um, I, there was one thing they said I was unsure about. Okay. The ability to transfer if you have low basis stuff. I thought that was something we didn't want to do. That's something you don't want to do in normal life. Mm -hmm. um, but if you use these charitable vehicles, then you can avoid the capital gains tax. And so it's why we actually seek out those kind of assets for these charitable vehicles, because they're one of the few ways that you can take a low basis asset and sell it, get income off of it, and not pay capital gains tax. It was the same thing we looked at with the charitable gift annuity, um, although that was a little bit more restrictive, where you could make a transfer of low basis stock in exchange for the gift annuity, not have to pay capital gains tax on the transfer, and the charity didn't have to pay capital gains tax when it sold it. So, uh, so, th so that's if you're just selling things outright, then you want to avoid selling the low basis stock because you're, you're going to be paying a lot of capital gains tax. We can avoid that through using these charitable planning techniques if you have a, a client who has charitable interests. Can you put options into Sure. Yeah. It, it can hold anything except for something where it is directly managing. That's why it can't hold the S-Corp stock because that's a pass-through entity and it's not, it's not separated. Um, but, yeah, really I think just about any kind of asset um, that is not a direct management asset. Um, limited partnership interests, you know, great. Not the general partnership interest, limited partnership uh, part of it. Anything that's that's not a direct management asset, it's going to be fine. If it's a direct management asset, you gotta you gotta kick it out right away, uh, or it causes. Um, there's actually if if you earn unrelated business income in a charitable remainder trust, um, the there is a special tax on it. It is a 100% tax. Okay, that's not pleasant. So don't earn unrelated business income in a charitable remainder trust because um, that tax schedule is real hard to work with there. Um, don't do it. That's why we don't, you know, put in. I mean, if you put in something that's like a sole proprietorship, you only put it in until you get that thing sold right away um, because of that. You don't want to be earning any, any money with that sort of uh, animal in there. 
Yeah, yeah. Hundred percent tax can incentivize or disincentivize behavior pretty pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were, one okay. thing we talked about in our group was um, if you have grandparents, you have a sizable estate, and they mm -hmm. want to reduce their their gross estate, and they want to give to their kids over time, mm -hmm. be able to see their gift, but they don't have to worry about writing out a check every year. Mm -hmm. and they could do this, set it up this way to be able to distribute those assets to their kids and to a charity. Mm -hmm. um, but then something else Tom highlighted, which I thought was good, was uh, you could put in spendthrift controls. And so that would be a good way also if you have kids that you're not quite sure about their their spending habits or how they'll treat your estate, mm -hmm. that uh, this would be a good way to control that. And now what you're getting into is uh, is the idea of just how incredibly flexible these things are. Because they're all individually created, because these are, these are uh, individual trust documents, you can decide, okay, we're going to pay out to... The uh, to the, the the children or to the grandchildren. Oh, but by the way, if that child or grandchild goes through a divorce, gets sued, uh, kills somebody, you know, whatever, and uh, we're going to stop paying if that money is just going to go to creditors, and we'll just you know we'll just uh, we'll ship it to another um, we'll ship it to another uh, uh, beneficiary until those creditors go away. Um, now they do still ha they have to wind up paying it out somewhere. Um, it's not allowed to just accumulate it uh, necessarily, but uh, you could, in, in fact, there are cases where you could set it up, you know, let's, you get really crazy. Let's say I've, I've got uh, clients, wealthy grandparents, they want to benefit a grandchild, he has a drug problem. So they could set it up to say, this thing is going to transfer out to you 50 grand a year, but you have to be willing to take random drug tests. If you refuse to take it uh, for any particular year or you fail it for any particular year, no income for that year. Income's going to go to some charity or to your nephew you hate or whatever. <laughs> Next year, you have another chance. You know, If you are willing to submit to that, then the money's there for you. Uh, it's going to be random and, you know, all that sort of thing. You could set it up. You have to pay the trustee more to go through all this hassle, but you could do that. I mean, you can't do that with a gift annuity, right? Because those are all standard cookie-cutter things. You can set up creative things like this because you can put in these trust rules, whatever you want to, to do. Um, there are uh, just getting into, you know, other sort of cute things you can do with trusts in general, and this would be one example of it. There are people who want to benefit children or grandchildren, but they don't want to have trust fund kids. You know, those that, well, I'm getting my money no matter what, so I can go goof around. And so they'll do things like, they'll say, okay, we will uh, transfer to you $3 for every $1 you earn. Okay, So you're going to get benefited, but if you just sit on your butt, you're going to get nothing. You've got to go out and earn money, and then we'll, you know, all these sort of creative things, that, and that's why I say you know you can take forever with all the fun things you can do with this because it, 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 it because there's a lot of creativity that that is uh, available. Spendthrift trust is is a great thing uh, in in those circumstances uh, to, to to be able to do, and you certainly can do that with these payments coming out to uh, somebody else. Yeah. Okay. Any others? Okay. Group back here. Um. We said that this would be a useful vehicle when someone has a large amount of equity in, say, one single company mm -hmm. or one single sector, and they have a low basis in it. And um, 
they can use this to kind of liquidate their concentrated assets mm -hmm. once it's in the uh, mm -hmm. CRT. Mm -hmm. And then the CRT can go out and buy like a diversified portfolio with those, uh, with the cash. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, because there's, uh, when we look at capital gains tax, there's no capital gains tax to put it into the trust. Once it's in the trust, then the trust is itself a charity, so it can sell, no capital gains tax, re, uh, reallocate things. You can do that without having to uh, recognize the capital gains tax up front, uh, and we'll look later, there are some circumstances where you actually wind up never recognizing the capital gain. It, uh, okay, so yeah, the question is, is it possible there's no money left to go to the charity at death? Just as with this charitable gift annuity, that's certainly the case. You can have people that live way too long. Uh, you can have investments that go bad. Uh, all of those things could lead to that possibility. The flip side of that is you could have somebody that sets one up, gets hit by a truck the next day. So a whole lot more went to the charity than, than they expected. Or you have somebody that sets one up, they manage the, the money inside, and they're really good at managing the money, and it winds up outperforming, and so the charity gets more than was actuarially expected at the front. So same kind of deal with charitable gift annuity. Yeah, the charity may get nothing. It may get more than, than it was projected. That just seems like it would happen really quick if uh, a couple slides ago you said 5 to 50% per year. Mm -hmm. So if we're giving, if, if we're taking payments of fifty percent of the trust every year, mm -hmm. wouldn't it seem highly likely that the uh, range of payouts for a charitable remainder trust has to be somewhere between five percent and fifty percent? But regardless of whatever payout rate you pick, the minimum amount of the present value that is going to wind up going to charity has to be at least ten percent. So if you pick something like a 50% payout, then your charitable remainder trust can't last very long, I mean, probably maximum of uh, three years or so, because it's still, at that 50% payout, has got to leave enough at the end that the charity is going to be getting more than 10%. And so because of that, the payout rate isn't going to uh, affect necessarily uh, whether or not the charity gets at least 10% in the end, because that's got to happen regardless. Okay, so there are a number of reasons why a donor might want to use a charitable remainder trust. Let's take a look at some different scenarios, some different examples. Let's say you have a person who says, I'd like to use $50,000 per year for my assets, and the rest I want to go to my favorite charity. Now, you can have this person set it up just as a financial planning approach, that they take $50,000 a year out of their assets and that they leave uh, a will that says I leave everything to the charity. Now you can do that, but you would get more tax advantages on a number of aspects if you do that through a charitable remainder trust, where they set the assets into the trust, take $50,000 a year out, and commit in advance that everything else is gonna to go to the charity in an irrevocable commitment, which is why they can get a tax benefit right now, which is why they can put in appreciated assets and avoid capital gains tax. Another scenario, you have somebody who says, I want to control my own investments and spend about 5% of my assets each year. After death, I want it to go to charity. Now, that's something a charitable remainder trust can give you that a charitable gift annuity can't, which is the ability to control your own investments, to control your own assets. Well, this clearly is a planning scenario where it makes sense to set up a charitable remainder trust if we're dealing with enough money. 
somebody who wants to control the investments to spend about a certain percentage of their assets each year and after death they want it all to go to charity. Now you can do that without using a charitable remainder trust, but you're not going to get all those tax advantages of an immediate income tax deduction, of avoiding capital gains tax, and uh, of uh, uh, working within the framework of a uh, charitable uh, entity. Um, another scenario, somebody says, I want to retire today, but my pension doesn't start paying for nine more years. I want to give assets to charity, but I still need $65,000 a year for the next nine years. What about that scenario? Well, a CRT can fit that scenario as well. You've got somebody who needs income, but not for life. They need it just for the next nine years. Well, these charitable remainder trusts are all individually created. They're created for the individual needs of that particular client. So if you've got a client who wants a specific amount of income, in this case $65,000 a year, and they want it just for a particular period of years, say until the other retirement plans kick in, you can certainly set that up so that those are the terms of the charitable remainder trust. So that would uh, certainly be a planning option that could, uh, uh, th that could be achieved. But of course, the reality is that the motivator for using the charitable remainder trust is not because you can achieve these outcomes, but because you can achieve these outcomes with what is the biggest reason that donors use charitable remainder trusts, and that is, of course, tax benefits. It's the fact that we can achieve those goals, those financial goals, but by using the Charitable Remainder Trust, we can achieve those goals in a way that is much more tax efficient. We can achieve them in a way that uh, has a positive effect on, um, on uh, taxes, uh, income taxes, uh, state taxes, uh, and uh, also can avoid capital gains taxes. We can accomplish the same thing without using a Charitable Remainder Trust by setting up a will that has a charitable gift and taking out a certain amount of income. But guess what? If you do that, there's going to be no income tax deduction. With a charitable remainder trust, you get an immediate income tax deduction for committing that that money at the end of a period of years or at the end of a person's life is going to go to charity. You get that income tax deduction right now. You set up a will with that in it and you get no tax deduction. Why? Well, because with the will, you can always change your mind. And with the Charitable Remainder Trust, you can't change your mind. So by giving up that ability to change your mind, that's what generates the ability for you to get a tax deduction. The other major advantage, as I mentioned, is that there are no capital gains taxes when the donor makes a transfer to the Charitable Remainder Trust. Now, this is a big deal because once the assets are in the Charitable Remainder Trust, the CRT is itself a nonprofit entity. And so when the CRT sells those appreciated assets, it pays no capital gains tax because it is in and of itself a charitable entity. So this is a way where we can avoid the capital gains tax. No capital gains tax when we transfer the appreciated property in and no capital gains tax when the CRT sells it because it's a charitable entity. And that is a major benefit that uh, makes this uh, uh, planning instrument uh, something that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so why is it such a big deal that you can transfer and sell appreciated property without capital gains when you go through this process? Well, let's take a look at a, an example. You have a client. That client holds a large, 
highly appreciated asset that doesn't generate much income. Now, now this comes up a lot. You may have somebody who has uh, developable land, uh, let's say. Uh, we've got raw land. It can be used maybe a little bit for farming, but it's really much more valuable because it's on the edge of the growth of a suburban area. So it has a high value, but it doesn't generate much income because until somebody comes along and decides to develop it, put a strip mall there or put a subdivision there, it's still only going to generate whatever income you get from you know, cutting hay off of it or doing something agricultural. You can have another scenario. You know, you've got somebody who has uh, a non-dividend paying stock. Now, maybe this is something they've invested in uh, over the years just buying a certain company uh, on, uh, on, on Wall Street, or it may be uh, their uh, own individual business that they would like to uh, uh, that they would like to uh, sell off because it's not it's worth a lot but it's not generating a lot of income they want to sell that interest and they want to turn it into some income producing property so let's say you have that scenario if we're doing regular non-charitable financial planning it's a real problem it's highly appreciated that means when we transfer it we're going to get whacked with the capital gains tax either federal or maybe state and federal, depending on where the person's living at. So the basic concept of saying, well, I've got you know, this developable land or I've got this non-dividend paying stock and I need income off of it, uh, how do I make that happen? Say, we'll just sell it and convert it into income producing property. There's a big problem with that and that problem is that that sale generates the capital gains tax. So how can we do that? How can we convert it to income generating property? Well, option one is to just do it the straightforward way. We sell it, we pay the capital gains tax, and we invest the remaining amount. So let's say we've got a million dollars of stock. Uh, if uh, we bought that originally for $100,000, highly appreciated stock, what's going to happen when we sell that million dollars of stock? Well, what's going to happen is a gain, a $900,000 gain. And let's suppose somebody's paying capital gains tax at a 15% rate federal, uh, let's add on to that a 5% rate state, so they're paying a combined capital gains tax rate of 20%. If you have that scenario, that means before they even get started investing that million dollars into income-producing assets, they're going to lose $180,000 of it right off the top. What that means is they've only got $820,000 left over to invest to try to generate income rather than that million dollars they started with. So we can look at option two, if you've got someone who does have charitable intent, and I have to emphasize that all of these techniques are just for people who have charitable intent. If they don't care about charity, then uh, don't uh, focus on charitable planning techniques. But the option of transferring it to the charitable remainder trust, the upfront advantage is that when that person transfers it, there's no tax on the gain, and so that entire million dollars is still available to purchase income-producing assets. So that's a big difference from just the straight to sale and paying the tax. That is one of the primary tax advantages that drives a lot of the planning, a lot of the examples that we'll see, because obviously you're going to be able to generate more income off of the entire amount rather than trying to generate income off of a reduced amount, that is, after you've paid the capital gains tax. 
Now let's look at some other charitable remainder trust combinations. I've kind of given you the broad outlines of how a CRT works, but there are some different flavors of CRT, some different experimental combinations that have, uh, that have been approved uh, that are safe to use. So let's start out with the first one. Not used quite as much because there are some newer things that are uh, usually more favorable, uh, but it was one of the initial uh, changes to the Charitable Remainder Trust, and that is the Net Income Charitable Remainder Unit Trust, or the NICRUD. What's a Net Income Charitable Remainder Unit Trust? Well, it's just like a standard CRUD. Uh, everything's the same with one exception, and that exception is that the NICRUT, net income CRUT, will pay only if there is enough income that is available. Basically, what a NICRUT says is you cannot pay income out of principle. Now, the IRS approved this, said this is fine. Why did they approve it? Well, because if you think about it, the difference between a CRUT and a NICRUT, uh, a net income CRUT, uh, it means that the non-charitable beneficiary can potentially have less of a payout. And so because of that, IRS looks at it and says, well, so essentially the worst that could happen is that the charity winds up getting a larger amount, not a smaller amount. Uh, and that's exactly what the effect is. Basically what this says is, uh, for example, let's say we pick a 5% payout. This is we're going to pay out 5% of the total value of this uh, of this trust each year, but we will never make payments out of principal. In other words, that trust has to earn at least 5% every year. If there's some year it earns less than 5%, then we're only going to pay out the income that it earned. So that was one of the original uh, examples. So what's the deal with this? Why, why would you want this? Why would you say, oh, please pay me less money? How does that make sense? Well, there are some scenarios when you might want that limitation. Uh, let me give you an example. Let's suppose you want the trust to hold a non-income producing asset. Like, let's say, for example, uh, we could talk about artwork. Or, um, more uh, common perhaps, let's say you've got that same example where a person has uh, developable land. Okay, this is um, uh, land that is currently agricultural, it's on the edge of suburban growth, and uh, its, uh, its best use is to be turned into a strip mall or a, a high-end subdivision. If you put that land into a CRUT, and the CRUT has to pay out, say, 5% value a year, there is no way that that land just by you know cutting hay off of it is going to generate five percent of its value so what does that mean well what it means is that the trust is going to be forced to sell part of that land and that doesn't make any sense at all because you've got a piece of land you need to wait for the right buyer who's ready to develop you can't just instantly make that happen and the last thing you want to start doing is breaking off chunks of this and uh, selling it in little pieces. You're going to start devaluing your property. And the same way that, uh, you know, maybe you have uh, a closely held uh, stock. Uh, maybe you have uh, not subchapter S, but let's say there's a subchapter C uh, stock that is, um, uh, that is uh, for a small uh, company. And the idea is we want to put the company into this uh, CRT and we want to ultimately sell the company. Well, you 
don't want to be in a situation where you're forced to sell shares of stock early. Or if you have uh, the example of artwork, uh, it, it can be really challenging to sell 5% of a piece of artwork. You know, you, you don't want to have to be forced to sell something off in pieces uh, before the right time and the right place for a sale comes along. And that's really the motivation for uh, using a, a net income uh, crut is to avoid the uh, normal payout requirement that could force a sale when you don't want to force a sale. Then there is a uh, much more commonly used cousin of the net income crut, uh, which is the NIM crut or net income makeup crut. The difference with the net income makeup crut is that rather than saying there is no payment ever if the required payout is higher than income, what it does is it says the CRUT will write an IOU to the income beneficiary that says, I know you were supposed to get 5% a year, but we didn't have any income this year, or we had less than 5% income this year, and so we're only paying you out our, uh, the income that the CRUT created. But here's an IOU, and as soon as the CRUT has enough income, we will pay out all of that income, not only to cover the 5% that we pay out each year, but we'll go back and pay you out the uh, payments that you're not getting this year because we didn't generate enough income. So the difference between a NICRUD and a NIMCRUD is that with a NICRUD or net income CRUD, if you don't have the income, you lose the payment. With a NIMCRUD, if you don't have the income, you get an IOU. And the IOU is paid whenever there's enough income to pay the regular payout in addition to the IOU. So, uh, basic idea of an MCRUT is that past payments are made up whenever net income is sufficient. You get an IOU from the CRT that pays you off as soon as there's enough income. Now, these are better for the income beneficiary, but they're not always perfect. Why? Well, because you've got to generate enough income later for that IOU to be worth anything. If the amount of money that the CRUT is earning is consistently less than the payout rate, you're going to do nothing but stack up an accumulation of these IOUs, but there's no income to pay them. Uh, if there isn't enough income to make normal payouts, uh, you're certainly not going to be able to make up those past deficiencies. And so the NIMCRUTs uh, aren't uh, perfect. Well, this idea of the uh, issue where the NIMCRUTs were not able to make up the, uh, the, uh, to pay the IOUs, uh, to make up the difference from future income, led to a concept called a flip crut. Now, a flip crut is a combination. It is a crut that starts out life as a net income, or a net income makeup crut, but on a particular event, at a particular event, it triggers and becomes a standard crut. Okay, so you've got you start out with a net income crut, and then you trigger it, and it becomes a standard crut. Uh, what are these flip cruts all about? What's the point of them? Um, what's uh, w when are they helpful? Well, these are often used when you have that scenario that you're setting up a charitable remainder trust 
and you're putting in non-income producing property. Uh, oftentimes it could be real estate, it could be a uh, business that is in the growth mode, not in the income producing mode, uh, and you've got this asset. It could be artwork, right? What is it 90% of the time? 90% of the time it's real estate. Okay, it's something that's valuable, but doesn't generate that much income, and we don't want to be forced to sell off small pieces of the real estate to make this forced payout. So what we do instead is we set up the NICRUT or the NIMCRUT. But after that item is sold, we want to have forced payments. Okay, let me walk through this. At the beginning, we don't want to have forced payments. We want to have a NICRUT or an MCRUT, so we're not making payments more than income that's being produced. Okay, But once that piece of real estate is sold and we've got cash in there, now as an income beneficiary, I want my full payout. Even if the trust doesn't make enough income, I still want my full payout. So that's the transition. I want not to have to make those full payouts before the asset is sold, but once the asset is sold, then I want to force those payouts to make sure that I'm getting my full 5% or 6% or whatever the payout rate is. That's where the flip cut comes in. Uh, what kind of trigger events can you have? Uh, common trigger events, uh, most likely 90% of the time or 80% of the time, uh, is the sale of non-income producing property. You could also have a trigger event of reaching retirement age. Uh, reach retirement age and you say, okay, look, at this point, I don't care if I'm taking out a principal or income, I just want the income. You need to make that, uh, that uh, payment. Before that point, maybe I don't mind if it accumulates. Uh, and so that's the uh, example of a triggering event. Uh, so let's take a look at how one of these might uh, play out <clears throat> in uh, uh, in. Uh, a graph form here. Uh, let's say in uh, 2010 somebody transferred uh, an asset. Let's say it's something that doesn't produce income. Uh, maybe that asset is uh, a Monet painting. Okay, I put this painting into the charitable remainder trust. 2011, I get income from the trust up to 5%. Well, guess what? It's a painting. It didn't generate any income. Right? Next year, income up to 5%. Third year, income up to 5%. Then what happens is, well, what happens is I sell the painting. And now instead of having a million-dollar painting, I've got a million dollars in cash. Well, that sale is the trigger event that makes the Charitable Remainder Trust flip from being a NICRUT or NIMCRUT to flip into being a standard uh, Charitable Remainder Unit Trust or a STANCRUT, if you like to think of it that way. From that point on, the trust must pay out 5% a year, or whatever the payout rate is. Here we're using the example of 5%. The trust must pay out 5% a year, regardless of, uh, of uh, whether it earns that much income or not. That has got to come out, and it pays it out for the rest of the person's life, if we've set up the CRT to be uh, a CRT for life. Uh, so the trigger, uh, for example, can be the sale of the million dollar of non-income uh, producing land uh, or the artwork, as I made the example of uh, a second ago. Another way to approach this, the CRT trustee could invest in non-income producing property, such as non-dividend paying growth stocks until a retirement date that triggers this flip 
and maximizes post-retirement distributions. So one approach I could take is to say, well, you know, what I want to do is I want to give this money to charity at my death. But I want to use it before my death, primarily for retirement planning. So if I set it up today, because I want the tax deduction today, but I don't really want the income today. I want the income when I turn, let's say, 65. How do I set it up so that I not only get the income when I turn 65, but I don't want to get the income now. I don't want to pay taxes on it. don't need it. But I also want a bigger amount of income when I hit age 65. Well, the flip card can do that. Because let's think about it. Let's say I've got a client who's age 55. For the next 10 years, I don't want this crut to, be, to pay out anything. I just want it to accumulate. And then when I turn age 65, I want it to start paying out to me at 5% a year uh, or 6% or whatever percentage I pick. How do I do that? Well, if I set it up as a flip crut where it's going to flip to a standard crut once I turn age 65, in the intervening 10 years, what I can do is to intentionally invest in assets that go up in value but don't generate any income. So I invest in gross stocks that don't pay dividends, but we anticipate that they go up in value, uh, that, they're in, uh, that they're going to be worth more. And so what I'm doing during this period of time is accumulating, 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 and then once the trigger event happens, at that point at age 65, then the trust is required to pay out 5% or 6% or whatever the percentage is to pay out that 5% of assets. So you can get flexible with these. Just to kind of give you the framework, we spent a fair amount of time looking at charitable gift annuities. And charitable gift annuities I think of as the sort of all-purpose, simple, cheap, they're like the number two lead pencil. You can use them for lots of things. Charitable gift annuity, annuities from a charity are usually identical except for the dollar amount. Charitable remainder trusts are not simple and cheap like charitable gift annuities. They are flexible but more expensive. Charitable remainder trusts are individually created and they're created according to the specific desires of each client. So we can get a whole lot more creative with charitable remainder trusts, but we're going to pay for that creativity and that flexibility because we've got to individually draft the documents. We've got to file annual income tax reports for the trust. We've got more ongoing expenses uh, than we do with the uh, charitable gift annuities, but more flexibility. So what are some examples of the flexibility of charitable remainder trust as compared to charitable gift annuities? Well, number one, you've got an unlimited number of public charity or private foundation beneficiaries. So you don't have to uh, limit yourself only to one particular charity or to limit yourself to charities that run charitable gift annuity programs. You have open choice on the number of payout years, the amount of payout, whether you want to be a fixed amount or a fixed percentage. There are an unlimited number of income beneficiaries. You can pick uh, any number of income beneficiaries. You can allow special restrictions on income. Uh, you could say, we want to set up a spendthrift trust. Uh, you could uh, match earned income to prevent trust fund kids. This is the idea that I don't want to just give the kids guaranteed income so that they can do nothing, uh, but I'll match, uh, say, $2 for every uh, $1 of income uh, that is earned. Uh, you could even require random drug tests if you have a scenario where that would be uh, where that would be useful. Just almost unlimited flexibility. You can put in 
whatever kind of restrictions you want because these are individually created just for that particular client. So the, the, the limits are really just the limits of the client's desires and your creativity. Uh, just to give you an example, this is a uh, quote from uh, Leona Helmsley's Charitable Remainder Unit Trust that she actually created as a testamentary trust. It was created in her will. And for those of you who may not know, Leona Helmsley was a very wealthy, um, part of, um, uh, owned a lot of property in New York, and was at one point very famous as a hotel uh, owner and hotel manager. So let's read this. Uh, this is from her uh, unit trust set up in her will. Notwithstanding any provision of this will to the contrary, my grandchildren... Uh, David and Walter shall not be entitled to any distributions from any trust established for such beneficiary's benefit under this will unless such beneficiary visits the grave of my late son, Jay, at least once each calendar year, preferably on the anniversary of my said son's death. Uh, except that this provision shall not apply during any period that the beneficiary is unable to comply therewith by reason of physical or mental disability as determined by my trustees in their sole and absolute discretion. So she set this up that says, okay, here's a CRT. Stuff's going to go to charity at the end. You get an income for a period of years or for life. But to get the income, you got to go visit the grave. How would this be set up? Well, you know, you would, uh, uh, part of the what the trustee might do is to um, meet them out there. You know, let me know when you're going so I can go out there and verify that it's happened. Um, you know, take a take a photo or something like that. It's part of the trustee's fees is going to bill the hours against the uh, trust. But the point is, you know, you can get creative or obnoxious, however you want to uh, think of it. These are all individually created and being individually created, you can do pretty much whatever you want in setting up these rules. Okay, so the advantage of the charitable remainder trust, you get an immediate income tax deduction. We certainly don't get that with a will uh, because we can change that will. You get no capital gains tax on transfer to the CRT, no capital gains tax when the CRT sells, and you can get lifetime income off of it. Now, what's the problem? Well, of course, the problem or the advantage, depending on what your goal is, is that the remainder does go to charity and not to family. Is there any way we can look at addressing that limitation, that reality that it is a charitable trust and whatever's left over is going to go to charity? Well, there are a lot of techniques where we can modify, or in extreme cases, we can eliminate that disadvantage to the heirs by not only setting up a charitable remainder trust, but also setting up a separate wealth replacement trust through an islet. That is an irrevocable life insurance trust. Uh, you, the idea here is that if you purchase life insurance through an irrevocable life insurance trust, when that life insurance is transferred to the heirs, it is transferred 100% estate tax-free. So the idea is we start getting this benefit where if we transfer to heirs through an irrevocable life insurance trust, then because of that methodology of transfer, the heirs get the money tax-free. And as compared to inheriting the asset that we put in the charitable remainder trust, which would have been inherited after estate taxes are paid, all of a sudden the heirs get interested in this kind of charitable planning because it's better to inherit a non-taxable asset through 
life insurance held through an irrevocable life insurance trust as compared to inheriting that taxable asset that we put into the charitable remainder trust. We'll talk more about that later when we look at life insurance and charitable planning. Let's take a look now at some special rules for charitable remainder trusts. As I mentioned before, uh, these trusts do have to be charitable. Okay? And the definition of being charitable as far as the IRS is concerned is that the present value of the projected amount going to charity must be at least 10% of the transfer. Okay, So what that means is that if I'm doing a $10 million CRT, $1 million of present value must be projected to go to charity. Now, why I keep saying present value is, of course, the idea that if I set up a $10 million trust, and $1 million is going to go to charity after 30 years, that's not 10%. Why? Because I had to wait 30 years to get my $1 million. $1 million in 30 years is not worth $1 million today. I have to have a payout that is projected to give enough money to the charity that that expected payout is worth $1 million of today's money. So if that payout's coming in the future, it's going to have to be worth more than 10% of the initial value of the trust because the charity has to wait for it. Okay, so let's give an example uh, to kind of uh, flesh out, flesh this out. Let's suppose we have a donor who makes an initial transfer of $100,000 to a charitable remainder trust, and we're going to set it up with payments for 20 years. Now, we'll make the calculation simple because we'll just say, look, you're going to pay out for 20 years, uh, and uh, as a result of those calculations, we can project that, the, that at the end of 20 years, $15,000 is going to go to the charity. So the question is, is that a charitable remainder trust? In other words, does it qualify under the IRS rules, under the 10% rule? And uh, because we're projecting uh, present value from a future payment, we've got to have an interest rate. And let's say the applicable interest rate is 5%, just to keep the numbers simple. Our actual interest rate is much lower than that right now, but let's just use that number. So, charity is going to get $15,000 of this $100,000 uh, CRT in 20 years, and our applicable interest rate is 5%. Is that going to qualify? answer is... Um, well, the answer is, first we ask the question, what's the present value of that $15,000 that goes to charity after 20 years using a 5% interest rate? How do we figure present value? Well, that basic present value calculation, uh, we use our present value formula that hopefully you've run into in another financial planning class. Present value is just the future value amount that you're going to get divided by 1 plus the interest rate, raised to the number of uh, time periods that you're looking at, in this case, the number of years. So we just plug in those numbers. Our future value is $15,000. Our interest rate is 0.05. So we take 1.05 and we raise it to the 20th power because there's 20 years. And the formula comes out to say that $15,000 that you're going to get at the end of 20 years with a 5% interest rate, that's worth $5,653.34 today. That's how much it's worth. If you put that amount into a bank account earning 5% at the end of 20 years, you would have exactly $15,000. That's how we know that $15,000 in 20 years is worth $5,653.34. Okay. Now, let's go back to our question. 
is that transfer to the charity going to violate the 10% rule? And the answer is yes, it violates the 10% rule. The present value of what the charity is going to get, which is that $15,000 that they're going to get at the end of 20 years, the present value of that is worth only about $5,600. $5,600 is not 10% of the $100,000 transfer. It is significantly less than that. So this setup with this charitable remainder trust is not going to be treated as a charitable remainder trust because it's not charitable. It's not charitable enough, in other words, for the IRS to allow it to be uh, considered to be a charitable remainder trust. There is uh, one other similar but not identical requirement that is only for charitable remainder annuity trusts. And that is the question uh, related to uh, when a CRAT is projected to exhaust. And the question is, if there is a greater than 5% chance that the donor will live to the age that the CRAT is going to exhaust, assuming that it's a payout for life, then that CRAT will be disqualified. Okay, So basically, uh, the process is to figure out, using the current interest rates, if we've got a CRAT that's paying out, since it's an annuity trust, it's paying out a fixed dollar amount each year. Doesn't matter how much is in the trust, as long as there's a, as long as there's something in the trust, it's going to pay out that amount every year. How long would it take for that CRAT to run out of money, uh, assuming that it grows at the uh, interest rate that the uh, IRS is using for its calculations? Okay, we figure out that number of years, then we go to the life tables uh, provided by the IRS, and we figure out. Is there a greater than 5% chance that this donor could live to that age? And if that is the case, then that um, CRAT is not going to qualify. It is, it is not going to be con uh, treated as or given the benefits of a charitable remainder trust. So you do have to take a, a look at that because this, uh, this comes up, especially if you're looking at somebody who's setting one of these up at a much older age. Uh, because you're dealing with a much shorter life expectancy. So if we've got somebody who is, uh, uh, let's say, setting this up at age 80, and the life expectancy is about seven and a half years, uh, so I'm age 80, life expectancy is seven and a half years, and I'm projected at the end of seven and a half years to pay out an amount that's worth you know, at least 10% of the present value. But it could very well be that I might live more than my seven and a half years. In fact, it's possible I could live twice as long as my seven and a half years. And I probably have, I haven't looked it up, but I probably have a greater than 5% chance of living twice as long as my life expectancy. Now, on the other hand, if you're 40 and you're setting one of these up and you have a life expectancy of, uh, of uh, 40 years, um, you know, the chances that you're going to live twice as long as your life expectancy are, uh, um, are, are probably is not going to happen because you'd be 120 years old. So let's just say not possible, right? So you do have to check into this. It is a separate requirement. Now, anybody know why this is not a requirement for charitable remainder unit trusts? Right, so that's the, the difference is that with a charitable remainder unit trust, it only pays out a percentage of what's left over. So it's really hard to exhaust a charitable remainder unit trust because it just pays out less and less and less. 
Whereas a CRAT keeps paying out the same amount, even if it's, you know, uh, taking huge chunks out of principal, if it's taken, you know, it'll take everything to pay out that annuity. A charitable remainder unit trust, uh, it would be, in, in normal scenarios, would never exhaust. It would just make the payment smaller and smaller. The only, the only way really you could exhaust a, a CRUT is if you uh, invested everything in an investment that, uh, that went to zero. Like if you put the entire, if you'd put the entire CRUT into Enron stock and it goes to zero dollars, uh, it's worth nothing. Uh, then the CRUT uh, could exhaust, but not because of the payout. It would exhaust simply because you lost all the investment. Okay, so I've mentioned that if we don't meet these rules, we don't qualify as a CRT. Well, uh, why do we care about that? What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. There's no deduction. Go back to the original rule. Remember, a retained interest gift, those gifts are not deductible. The only time we can deduct a retained interest gift is if it falls into one of the exceptions. We looked at exceptions like uh, a, uh, um, a uh, remainder interest in a farm or home, a charitable remainder unit trust, a charitable remainder trust, or a charitable, charitable lead trust. Okay. Well, guess what? You don't qualify for an exception. So how much of a deduction do you get? Nothing, because this is a retained interest gift and we do not allow any of those deductions. Okay. Um, all right, so now we need to look at the next scenario, which is the next level of taxation when we actually start taking money out of the Charitable Remainder Trust. How is it taxed? It turns out it's taxed a bit differently than the Charitable Gift Annuity is taxed when a donor is taking money out of that. The best way to think of the taxation of income coming from a charitable remainder trust. And this is true regardless of whether it's coming back to the donor or it's going to somebody else that the donor identified to receive the income. The best way to think of what the tax characteristics of that income are is to think of the income being like uh, water that comes out from a, uh, uh, from a water dispenser that has different levels of income. And of course, the water that's at the bottom comes out first, right? And the water in the middle is going to come out second. The water at the top isn't going to come out till the very end. So the idea is when the trust makes a payment, it opens the spigot. So what that means is that the trust pays out the lower level, the ordinary income that is in the charitable remainder trust. Any money that is considered ordinary income all gets paid out first. Ordinary income is paid out first. Then capital gains is all going to be paid out. Then exempt income. By that, we're looking at things like a uh, municipal bond, for example. Exempt income is all going to be paid out. And then only after all of those sources of income have been paid out, will we get return of principal. And remember, this is a big deal because return of principal is the only part that's not taxable. If we have return of principal, we're just getting our own money back that we put in there initially, and there's no taxes on that. But this is a different tax treatment than we see with charitable gift annuities. With charitable gift annuities, part of every payment until that person reached their life expectancy was return of principal. With a charitable remainder trust, you may never get to a return of principal. 
fact, you may never get to pay, uh, you may never get to capital gain. You may have ordinary income for 100% of those payments for the entire duration of the payments. If that trust is earning enough income that it can make its payments strictly out of the income that it earns, then those payments are going to be 100% ordinary income because all of that ordinary income gets paid out first before anything else gets paid out. So, let's look at an example. Let's suppose a donor gives $100,000 of stock with a $10,000 basis to a charitable remainder trust. The CRT sells the stock, buys corporate bonds generating $3,000 of income, and municipal bonds generating $2,000 of tax-exempt income. Okay? So we've got four different kinds of animals here. Uh, take a look at uh, where each of these goes. We've got $3,000 of ordinary income. That comes from the corporate bonds, just straight like interest, it's ordinary income. We've got $90,000 of what's in the trust is considered capital gain because we put that stock in, it was worth $10,000, and uh, we um, had, uh, it was worth $100,000, excuse me, and we had a $10,000 basis in it, and so $90,000 of that is gain. Now, that capital gain, of course, the trust doesn't pay any taxes on that capital gain because it's a charitable entity. But if you do pay that capital gain out to a non-charitable income beneficiary, then you are going to have to pay those capital gain taxes. Uh, okay, so uh, we have $2,000 of exempt income. That's our tax-exempt income that comes from our municipal bond. And then finally, we have $10,000 of return of principal. That's the basis that we had in that uh, stock that was transferred. So with that scenario, what if the trust requires that we make a $2,000 distribution? What is the tax treatment of that $2,000 distribution? And the answer is, it's all ordinary income. It doesn't matter that we've got exempt income or return of principal or capital gain because everything is paid out in this tiered system. We have $3,000 of ordinary income, so when we make a $2,000 payout, it's all ordinary income. That spigot opens, and this lower level, this lower kind of income, that's the only thing that is paid out. So $2,000 of ordinary income. What if instead the trust required to make a $5,000 distribution? How would we treat the, uh, how would the recipient report that income? Well, the recipient's going to have $3,000 of ordinary income because all of that pays out. All of that pays out, so that's $3,000. The rest of it, which is $2,000, is going to be capital gain. That means this tax-exempt income earned from the municipal bond, um, it's, it, that doesn't get paid out. Okay, that would be tax-free if it was paid out. Return of principal would be tax-free if it's paid out. But none of that's going to get paid out until the, all of the capital gain is paid out. And in this scenario, that's going to take a while. Okay, uh, what is the tax treatment of a $10,000 distribution? Well, again, the same basic idea. The first $3,000 is ordinary income because all of that pays out first. When we've poured out all the ordinary income, we start into the capital gain. So the rest of it's going to be capital gain. Uh, so we have $3,000 of ordinary income, $7,000 of capital gain. Now, of course, as I mentioned before, if the trust... Ordinary income earnings are always higher than distributions. There will never be any capital gain tax paid. So this can be a good thing. Remember, one of the advantages of the Charitable Remainder Trust is that uh, we can take this highly appreciated asset, 
transfer it to the trust. The trust can sell it and pay no capital gains tax. So we can earn income off of the entire amount, not the entire amount reduced by the capital gain tax. And if we earn enough income to make those CRT payments every year, to make those uh, income payments every year, then we're never, ever going to have to pay that capital gains tax. It never gets paid. Uh, So it's a difference in that the capital gains tax may not just be deferred. I mean, it's always going to be deferred, but if you earn enough income, it may never, ever be paid because you're earning enough income off of it to Uh, pay out your uh, required payments. And so uh, in that scenario, a charitable remainder trust has the opportunity to not just defer capital gain, but to actually uh, defer it so far that it's never ever paid. It can be completely avoided uh, in uh, in certain circumstances. Okay, before we uh, talk about what kind of property charitable remainder trust can hold, let's take just a quick break and then we'll get back together. So last time we ended on charitable remainder trusts with this whole thing, uh, how do they uh, pay out income. Uh, But there is another topic that can sometimes be important, and that is what kind of property can a charitable remainder trust hold? Because the general answer is we can hold anything you can own, you can hold there. But there are some exceptions. And so I do want to mention the exceptions before we jump into charitable lead trusts. One of the things you can't hold in a charitable remainder trust is a subchapter S corporation stock. Okay. The reason is subchapter S stock is intended to be it's intended to be held by individuals, by, by humans. Okay. It's not intended to be held by uh, corporations, uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, uh, and essentially your uh, trust here is um, it is almost like its own uh, non-profit foundation type of an entity. Uh, and those kinds of entities are, uh, according to the Subchapter S Corporation rules, um, don't qualify to hold Subchapter S stock. So if you've got somebody that has a, uh, that has a company that's in Subchapter S form that wants to put it into a CRT, you've got to change the form. The CR, the, if a CRT holds S Corporation stock, it will... Um, mess up the S corporation and it will cause it to essentially become a default or a C corporation. Um, and so you can't hold S corporation stock in, uh, in a charitable remainder trust. The other thing, and this is, this is a potential you know, major deal, uh, and so you don't ever want to mess this up <clears throat> for charitable remainder trust, is this unrelated business taxable income. And I mentioned it a little bit last week, but I want to get more specific with it. The charitable remainder trust, just like really any other nonprofit organization, um, if it gets income from running a business, now not from just being a passive investor, uh, passive like a, a shareholder in a C corporation uh, or um, uh, somebody paying interest or royalties, but if they are in the position of running a business, such as if they own, if it, uh, if the Charitable remainder trust owns something as a sole proprietor or as a partner, then income, net income that they get from that ownership, it's from running the business. Okay? And it turns out that it's particularly not good 
to have unrelated business income in a charitable remainder trust. Now, a, no, a normal nonprofit organization, if they're running an unrelated business, and, and unrelated means unrelated to their tax exempt purpose, if they're running a normal unrelated business, they can get income from it, they just have to pay taxes on it, not a big deal, as long as that's not their primary focus on what they're doing. But with a charitable remainder trust, there's a 100% excise tax. Now, this does not mean that it's all taxable. It means it all goes away. It's a 100% taxation rate. So if there is any taxable income from unrelated business being, uh, being done in the charitable remainder trust, the government takes all of it. Okay? So this is bad. Don't do this. Okay? It actually even gets worse, and I'll show you how, how it can get worse here in a, in, in a moment. <clears throat> okay, um, yeah, okay, that, I thought I took that out. So, what are we talking about here since this is a big deal? Because if you have stuff in a charitable remainder trust that's generating unrelated business taxable income, um, you know, you get whacked 100%, right? Uh, so you want to know the difference. What is okay? This stuff over here is fine. You can take dividends, you can take interest, annuities, royalties, rents from normal kinds of real estate and capital gains so long as none of them involve debt financing. Okay? Over here, what you can't do is net income, for example, from running a hotel. That's not the same as, you know, I have a, I have a, a, a piece of land that I'm getting rent for or I have a, a single family residence or a duplex or an apartment building that I'm getting rent for. This is more of a business, so IRS says no. Money from running a hotel, you're running a business, that's unrelated business taxable income. Running a parking lot, that's too much of a business. That's not just rent. Running a convenience store, a coin-operated laundry. Uh, so, uh, so, so what's this all about? Well, it's like this. Let's say you have an apartment in there and you can take rent from your apartment as long as it's not debt financed and that's not unrelated business taxable income, but if you have a laundry that's a coin-operated laundry in your apartment building, that is a business, and so any money from that will get taken uh, by this. Yeah. Could you rent the laundry facility out to a third party? Absolutely. Take the rent? Absolutely. <laughs> Could the third party be Proceeds to the charity. Well, this isn't this isn't exactly a charity. It's a charitable remainder trust. Oh, so, so, so the first part. Okay, could you have an outside person to do it? You know, when you get into those things, the answer is well, that could work. The IRS could collapse the transaction too. And by collapse the transaction, that's when they say we're going to ignore all this stuff and just put it all together because we know what you're trying to do. So. Yeah, but it's just as easy to say, well, let's just have an outside company to just do all this stuff for us and just send us a check. Okay, then we're not running it. It's fine. Now, here's the tricky part of all of this. If you have any of this stuff going on that you're getting income because it was debt financed, that's considered unrelated business uh, taxable income. Okay, so in other words... Um, Here's, here's the concept of the difference. If you've got $100,000 and you go out and you 
buy a, uh, a half of a duplex and you rent it out to, to uh, whoever, to college students, whoever you want to rent it out to. That's considered to be passive. You're taking the money and you're just, you're, you know, you, you're, instead of getting an in, interest check, you're getting a rent check. Okay? If you take that $100,000 and you instead use it as 10% down payments and you leverage it up and buy a million dollars worth of, a, uh, worth of a duplexes, now they're going to say, no, you're running a business now. You're not just trying to get a normal you know, uh, 4%, 5% return on your, on your uh, investment. You're now running this business. You're leveraging stuff up trying to, trying to make a mint. Okay? And if you use debt financing, we're just going to say you're running a business and that's going to be unrelated business um, uh, uh, income. And so you get into this problem. Now, let me give you an example to bring this home. Let's suppose somebody sets up their charitable remainder trust. They put into it a million-dollar home. Okay, this is my home. Put it in here. I'm very charitable, and I want this after I die uh, or after a period of years to go to um, charity. It has a $100,000 basis. Okay, so far no problem. The trustee who's managing the trust, for whatever reason, let's say it's not the donor. It could be the donor. It doesn't matter. The trustee says, you know what? We need to sell this thing because obviously you've got to start generating income, right? So we want to sell this thing, but it's not quite ready to sell. So as a trustee, I'm going to go out. I'm going to oh, borrow like $100,000 against it because it's debt-free property. I'm going to borrow $100,000 against it. I'm going to put on like a new porch. I'm going to you know, do some new painting things, add a, add a, 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 a third space in the garage to it because it'll make it sell better. And in fact, it does. In fact, it's a great thing because this trustee has used $100,000, he's taken a million dollar home, and now he's able to sell it for $1.2 million. So it's a good idea. It's a good investment, right? So what's the result of that transaction? <clears throat> the result of that transaction is that this now becomes debt finance property because it's got that $100,000 mortgage he took out on it to fix it up. That means that this capital gain, the whole capital gain, the whole $1 million, so remember it had a $100,000 basis and then he added $100,000 of improvements to it. That whole $1 million gain is unrelated business taxable income. It is taxed at 100% and it's gone. Okay, this is bad. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. This may be the next slide, but how would you do that without... Don't use debt. It's all about this step here. You can't yeah, borrow the money, what? but the charity could spend 100000 on the house. If it had other assets to spend, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right, because you now have debt on that item, that, and because you have debt on that item, any income from it, which includes the capital gain, is now debt uh, that's acquisition indebtedness, it's not unrelated business income. Yeah. So then the only way around it would be to pay off that debt prior to the sale. Right. Yes. Oh, so they could figure out a way to Let me think. A, or get 100000 right. to pay it off. Well, right. It still becomes indebted. And, no, because it's, it's, it's not at the time you have the income, it's not... Um, it's not this. It's not debt. It's not income from debt finance property. 
problem is here that it is debt, it has a mortgage on it, it's debt financed property and you get income off of it. So any income you get off of property with debt on it is unrelated business income. So the problem was here, their income came in not in the form of rents, it came in the form of a capital gain, but it came in in the form of uh, uh, while it had, uh, while it was um, debt finance property. Do you think it would be all right, if, I mean, if it, what if it were donated in a bargain, bargain sale, subject to the mortgage? Uh-huh, it still has the same effect. Yeah, it is, it is, it does become a bargain sale, but it's got debt on it, and um, that makes uh, that that makes it um, uh, debt financed income. Could we rent it for the first two years for five? What was it, fifty thousand mm -hmm. dollars? And then after those first two years, sell mm -hmm. it to the renter. Yes. The IRS wouldn't collapse. Right, because right, you're getting rent. Right. But there's no debt financing, so that's fine. And then you're using whatever cash you've accumulated to make improvements to it. It never involves debt financing, and so you're fine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I just wanted to sort of drive that home uh, uh, at the end there of, of the danger that is here with that particular um, investment. Some other things, uh, there are self-dealing rules. The Charitable Remainder Trust cannot sell, lease, loan, or allow use of assets by the person that sets up the trust, the, by the trustee, by the contributor, or anybody related to it. Okay? Ancestors, descendants, spouses, that sort of thing. This prevents you from doing something like, um, well, I'm going to put my house in a Charitable Remainder Trust, uh, but I'm still going to live in it. Uh, or I'm going to let my uh, son or daughter or m parent live in it. Um, th that's the concept of because you're an insider, you get a special deal. And the IRS doesn't want to see that sort of thing going on. And so they're just going to absolutely prohibit um, any of this kind of taking place. Uh, the, uh, once it's in the trust, the trust doesn't sell stuff, lease stuff, loan stuff, or out, allow the use of, of that stuff by anybody related to the contributor, creator, trustee. Okay. So that, um, that avoids some of these situations where um, you, uh, basically where you could wind up selling it for less than fair market value or giving somebody benefit from it that reduces ultimately what the charity will get in the end. That's what they want to avoid doing. Sweetheart deals that keep the charity from getting what they ought to in the end. And so that's a prohibition to, to try to prevent that. Uh, what about this? What if everybody agrees? Now we know that these are, you know, that these are irrevocable, but what if Everybody agrees we should just break this thing up and distribute out the, uh, the actuarial value of all of the shares. What does the IRS say about that? Um, the experience is that the IRS has actually allowed this uh, in private letter rulings. They've allowed termination and di distribution of the present value of all of the interests. Okay? So that, you know, we started with the idea that they're irrevocable. And that's, that is how they have to be written. Oops. Protecting us from the terrorists. Yeah. 
Korean terrorist, by the way. Virginia Tech was a, it was a Korean student that, that killed all those people, and so I'm protecting you from Korean terrorists. Okay. Um, I was just there, so I could be a target. You know, I may have offended somebody. I could be one of them. That's true. There's like a word. I'm going to get like a call on my cell phone, and I'll hear that word, and it'll be Manchurian candidate, and I'll just just go nuts. <laughs> this. Uh, so it turns out that um, private letter rulings have said, okay. Look, if you all agree that you're tired of this thing and the charity agrees and the beneficiaries agree and you want to just break it and give everybody their actuarial value right now, private letter rulings have said, okay, go ahead and do that. Now, you, you have to be able to do that under state law, so um, the uh, question, you know, the, it might be a process of, of how you would, uh, how you would um, go about doing that, but um, apparently the IRS... Uh, does have some exception in its uh, irrevocable concept. So would you have to recapture that No, 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 because you're still giving the same value to the charity. Um, when this breaks apart, you give the charity their actuarial value as of today, how much they should ex expect to get. Um, and so everybody still gets what they ought to get, they just don't get it early and smaller. Okay. All right. So that's. Um, oh, okay. One last thing on charitable remainder trusts. Uh, and this is this is in the category. These last few things are just in the categories of kind of neat little things from private letter rulings that that, that you can uh, think about doing. Um, suppose the donor wants to create a charitable remainder trust with enough value to build a building say at Texas Tech or maybe not at Texas Tech because uh, it's uh, maybe at a, a smaller organization that, that needs the building. But here's the problem. The charity needs the building now. I put enough money in that it'll build the building. You know, uh, It'll accumulate at the same rate of bu as building costs. And so it, it's, whenever I die, it's going to build the building. Problem is, charity says we really need the building now. And the donor says, I'd really like to see the building built now. I'd like to see the, you know, whatever kids running around in it, whatever, that kind of thing. <laughs> Is there any solution to this? Well, here's kind of a creative approach. The Charitable Remainder Trust, IRS and private letter ruling, allowed a Charitable Remainder Trust to segregate and pledge funds as collateral for a loan taken out by the charity. And so the concept is this is a loan that the charity will be able to pay off whenever they get the remainder. Okay. So the idea is you can say, okay, charity, you can go out now and borrow your million dollars to build your building. And instead of that being a liability against the charity, that can be a liability against the charitable remainder trust. And we'll even allow that trust to segregate out funds and pledge them and say these funds, now the income from the funds, that's still... Uh, can get paid out, but these funds are pledged uh, for this loan that the charity is making. Uh, and, uh, and then ultimately the idea is that the loan stays in place, um, the, the, the money's there to build the building, uh, the loan stays in place, uh, continues to accumulate, hopefully uh, the collateral will continue to accumulate, and at whatever point that the person, uh, that, the, that the term ends, 
the, um, uh, then the charity would be able to pay off the loan with the money they receive from the remainder interest. So that's getting into some of the kind of creative ways of working with this. Yes. What happens to the interest on that loan? Yeah, so probably it's going to be, I'm trying to think, how, how would they structure that? Would they structure it as the charity paying the interest or would they structure it as like a zero coupon bond where it just continues to accumulate and uh, hopefully your collateral is accumulating at the same rate as the charity so you'll always have enough uh, collateral to, to back up the loan. My sense is that what they're trying to accomplish is to have a, uh, a loan that just continues to accumulate and to have enough resources in the charitable remainder trust that it um, that over time as its assets grow it keeps up with the uh, with the uh, pledge of the increasing loan amount because I think the idea is we want to build the building now and the charity not contribute anything but then when the person dies or the time period ends then that will go and it'll completely pay off the loan I think that's the general concept so I think the idea, I mean, you could do it either way, but I think probably sort of in a perfect scenario, the, uh, the loan interest would just continue to accumulate and expand the, the, the loan, and the collateral pledged would continue to um, be more than the uh, loan amount as it accumulates. I think that would be sort of the perfect world. Can charity deduct interest? Charity doesn't care about deductions. Charity doesn't pay taxes. Oh, yeah. Question? No? Well, I was just thinking of, in particular with the interest rates, what they are and mm -hmm. the market, what it is. Mm -hmm. What we've seen is that uh, in order to uh, meet IRS rules, you have to pay up 5% of the fair market value of the assets. Mm -hmm. um, you can pay out, you have to pay out at least 5%. Yes. And used to, income typically was mm -hmm. more than 5%. But right. Today it's not, and so just thinking about how that might not accumulating enough to pay off the loan with the interest right. conceivably could not could not happen. Right. So you might, um, but but then of course the hopefully your interest rates are the money you're borrowing would be lower. So it more has to do with the spread of the interest that you're earning compared to the interest that you're paying as opposed to it being absolutely lower or absolutely higher. So it, it really would have to have to do with the, uh, with the spread. I mean, you know, the other approach would be, um, which would probably make more sense, um, is you could uh, allow the interest to accumulate on the building itself, let's say. Okay, you know, million-dollar building. Um, we've got our pledge for collateral for a million dollars. Uh, as the interest accumulates, it accumulates on the on the building, and then uh, um, and then you would pay off most of it when this thing comes off, and the rest of it later. That that kind of idea. I mean, it's still it's uh, um, kind of a neat idea that the uh, that the IRS in a private letter ruling said, yeah, that's fine, you can do that, because essentially it's just giving more benefit to the charity. Okay. All right. So that's charitable remainder trusts.